Being the Worst, Episode 4, recorded live, Tuesday, August 28th, 2012. From com, it's the Being the Worst podcast, audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsmen, with your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat review questions about designing command and event messages and then introduce the new topic of event sourcing. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. Hello and welcome back to the Being the Worst podcast. This is Carrie. How are you doing, Renat? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. What about you today? I'm doing well. This is our first episode that we get to record uh, where it's the morning for me, so I feel like I have a little bit more energy today. That could be a good or a bad thing for you, but thanks for doing this uh, late your time after your workday, so I appreciate it. Um, So today we're getting into the event sourcing basics, but uh, before we do that, we're going to, as we mentioned last time, get into the homework stuff. And so episode three about commanding your words, the assignment was to get into, you know, documenting the the vocabulary of the basic factory example that uh, there's a diagram in the in the code there where it lays out basically uh, a manager issuing commands to a factory worker uh, and their response to those commands and, and very basic car factory example. And so if you look at my homework, uh, I took a stab at, at doing the vocabulary of the factory, documenting some of the reports and trying to take a stab at some of the command and event design. And I wrote down some questions I had for the homework. Renata, are you ready for those? Uh, yes, sure, definitely. And uh, one thing I just want to highlight before we uh, dive in there. So, in essence, like this homework assignment, uh, it, uh, for you or for somebody else uh, listening to the podcast, it might have seen as an exercise in creative writing. Uh, actually, it's uh, extremely important because, like, as in the previous podcast, we highlighted the importance of words. And words, they come together uh, to form coherent model, uh, to form coherent picture. And when these words are expressed with usual uh, human vocabulary, these are uh, expressed as human-readable text, as paragraphs, as descriptions that humans can understand. Uh, when this meaning is expressed with messages and also aggregate behaviors which work operate with these messages, is how computers will understand this uh, meaning and how they will carry out the orders. And by uh, pushing additional effort into writing out these uh, human-readable messages and both in the written form and in the code form and by keeping these two forms close together we will ensure that our uh, programs will, uh, will stay close to the reality and that if reality changes it will be extremely easy to change the programs as well because like the words they, uh, if they are captured correctly they don't really change for example car the car will stay always the car. Like the meaning might change slightly, the colors of the cars might change, but the term of the car hasn't changed uh, since Henry Ford invented his Model T, which was uh, only in the black color. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, by creating and crafting actually our vocabulary, uh, we will simply and by putting additional effort into making that vocabulary ubiquitous and descriptive, we will make sure that our domain model that is being captured with this vocabulary will stay real and close to reality and that the code, which is representation of the domain model, it will be easy to evolve. In essence, like although this is just our third fourth episodes, uh, we're going quite deep into the basics and the most important things of the domain-driven design. Uh, and in essence, if you can uh, capture that and uh, be able to operate with that and understand the importance of that, uh, then you're aiming for the position of uh, domain developers. And in any enterprise, domain developers are among the most expensive and highly paid developers because they can both code and they can capture the essence of the business, the core business concepts, using the simple plain language. Okay, that was a sidestep from, from just uh, to highlight once again the real importance of these uh, exercises that might seem like a creative writing. 
but they're like they're essential. No problem. I think uh, I think almost anybody trying to speak to uh, developers, programmers, anyone who likes to mess around with code to make something work probably needs to get a sales pitch in there once in a while to say, please try to think before you start coding just a little bit. We swear it's worth it. You know, so yes. so uh, so no problem. I, I actually enjoyed the exercise and it, it it made me think about the problem a little bit differently and, and actually didn't finish all of it because I started to have questions and didn't want to duplicate a lot of the work. So you'll see that I, you know, I started started by doing the vocabulary and then I just took basically the reports right off of your diagram uh, to say, you know, the names of the reports. And then as I started writing the the commands and events, the questions about how you actually design those uh, started to come to mind. And, and I stopped because I felt like, you know, a lot of this is going to change. I'm, I don't feel like continuing. So, I, so my questions, when you, so even when I was doing this very simple factory example, it was very easy to start thinking of lots and lots of potential commands and events that would be required to actually create all the functionality that I would imagine. And so I could see right away why you might have wanted to invent that uh, DSL tool to auto-generate your messages and events for you because uh, even just doing it in uh, in Word and in Markdown text, I was getting tired of you know typing out of these parameters. And I'm like, I'd rather just be typing this in Visual Studio yes. because it's going to be code anyway. This is no stop. So, so but but what general guideline do you use to determine you know which method calls should be the traditional direct calls to a class versus using a command message to decouple every call? Uh, is the general goal in our approach to pretty much create a command and event for almost every possible piece of functionality that the requirements demand? Or, or is there a fine line? Because if, if it's creating a command and event for everything, it just seemed like there was going to be lots and lots of them. Okay, so in essence, there has to be a balance. Uh, the model has to be both descriptive and it also ha- uh, will have to be applicable to the technology. So uh, uh, currently, like we're starting our domain uh, model exercise, uh, just from the side of the ubiquitous language, uh, just from the side of the language. Uh, as we'll go deeper into the podcast, we'll go the process of uh, domain modeling, uh, starting from the textual model uh, and down to the implementation. We'll go through this route multiple times. Okay. And while we'll do these iterations, we'll actually learn like how uh, certain decisions, for example, at the vocabulary level, uh, they uh, are carried out and how they work out in the code. Uh, and in essence, the idea is uh, to start grasping the balance, uh, to sc- start uh, grasping the limitations or maybe some uh, side effects of the decisions that you make while thinking about the model in the words. Because although that we're saying like the domain model and the le- uh, vocabulary are extremely important, like they're not the only important things. Because if you just uh, start writing uh, your domain language in, I don't know, in poems, and they might look uh, really beautiful and expressive in their language, but capturing that in the messages, when you have like probably one or two messages per uh, poem line, you'll end up with too many messages. And that will be unyieldy and unpractical. So uh, the balance between uh, the amount of messages and uh, the amount of meaning you put into these messages, uh, it has to be balanced out. Okay. And the only way to learn this is just uh, by doing these practical exercises. Cool. Yeah, I think that that's definitely helping me realize that that balance is going to be needed and that I need experience on where to find that balance. And and so in an example, getting to your point you just made about, you know, how far do you go to make it poetic versus practical? And an example of that was when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about point of view and perspective and narrative voice. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm telling a story with this code. But from whose perspective and which point of view, you know, so it was very straightforward when I did things like, okay, a manager would say produce car. So I have a produce car message and a worker Mm -hmm. could reasonably say, you know, car produced. Great. But then when I got into things like, but the worker could also respond, you know, I don't feel like it or they don't respond at all. And I had, you know, in, in, in the current homework, I have a message called ignore manager with question marks Mm -hmm. after it. And for things like that, where this unexpected behavior, I was, my brain was scrambling on how would I create commands and events to represent those kinds of things, you know? Okay. Uh, so, uh, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, but short and quick, uh, tip is that not all the commands, not all behaviors that, uh, can be expressed in commands and events, uh, not all behaviors that happen in the real world, uh, they need to be captured. Got it. Uh, because 
while we're uh, capturing the main model, it's not an exact replica of the world. Because in the world we have far too many details. We have far too many things. Like for example, uh, worker A might hate worker B and they will never be able to work again. Uh, like they don't like working with each other. However, in the model, this might not be worth capturing. Because like what, when we capture something in the code, that requires our, our own effort. And we're interested in capturing only the things that are relevant for our code, for our problem at hand. And we consciously discard and ignore small things that don't matter. So in, uh, it, yeah, go ahead. if we decided, for example, that all we care about in this domain is the car was either produced or it wasn't produced, I don't really care if, it's, if he didn't feel like it or he chose to ignore the manager. It's just in this domain, I only care that it was either produced or not produced. Yes, so in essence, like for example, if you're working about talking about the factory, uh, the reason uh, like why worker felt not like producing might be irrelevant. If our uh, factory domain, if our book, essentially, if our narrative about the factory uh, is focuses on the psychological aspects, because maybe we're some company that uh, creates psychological profiles for workers working on the factory, mm. in that case, we might be interested in the psychological side effects. I see. So, so it, it's, uh, in essence, like our domain model, it's something similar to a book. We're writing a book, and as you know, uh, you can't fit everything in the book. The, the book has to be coherent. Uh, it has to highlight the most important parts, and you have to ignore the rest. Otherwise, the reader will be just overloaded with things. I see. So in essence, uh, like with the... Next episode, like well, the current episode on event sourcing, mm -hmm. uh, the idea would be to write a book, like a short narrative, about one day at a factory, uh, basing on the words and the commands and events that you started encountering. So, uh, if you have any more questions, let, let's just get back to this and then switch short. No, I, th I think that I do have a couple more questions unrelated to that, but they should be quick. I hope, but um, sure. but I think my takeaway was. The, these are exactly the kinds of things that you're hoping come out of thinking through these things. And, and that's where we start to, when we get into the details of that, that will be more like the domain-driven design discussions, et cetera, right? Yes. Okay. Actually, well, the stuff, the, the homework that you were doing, it's already a domain, uh, an exercise in domain modeling. You were capturing the ubiquitous language. Okay. And uh, the book of Eric Evans and in the book of Von Bernon, like ubiquitous language and vocabulary and the domain exercises and actually the process of talking, of different like people uh, talking about the commands, trying to use uh, the command names in their language, to seeing what fits, what matches. It's actually the process of capturing domain language, domain and, model. And, and as we learn that, those are the th learning those things are going to help me resolve these questions I'm having, right? Yes, of course. Okay, cool. So uh, the other things were more practical related. Um, and so... I was just curious, you know, as I was writing down this vocabulary, uh, do you, do you, when you actually do it in the real world, do you use any particular tool? Are you doing that in Microsoft Word or like what do you actually do to document the vocabulary in those reports? Do you do something similar to what I did in the homework or totally different? Uh, in essence, initially I was writing these uh, words in the text files just uh, to see how it works, like uh, essentially writing a dictionary. Then with a little bit of practice, like the process of writing dictionary, it kind of uh, became a little bit redundant. So uh, when I'm writing, a, starting to sketch a domain model, I just write a description. I just write a simple text that silently, that hiddenly inside uses these uh, commands and events as part of the sentences. So I can, for example, uh, if I were working on your domain model and I was writing a description, I would be writing like, okay, so uh, we have a factory, and this factory can create employees. And w well, when one employee is created, like he will be able to work in the factory. And immediately, already in that sentence, I would snatch some inconsistency. Factory can create employee. Mm -hmm. Employees created. Okay, uh, like if you if I go down to the factory and I start talking to the manager, and like he will look at weird at me. So maybe uh, like you don't create an employee at a factory, but you can assign an employee to a factory. Mm -hmm. And when an uh, employee is assigned to the factory, he can work on that. And uh, then like maybe there are some conditions that should be fulfilled when an uh, employee is assigned to the factory. 
when we're sorry when we're trying to assign employee to the factory. Uh, for example, in our specific factory, they might have a rule. One rule could be uh, because we have such a weird database system, employees with uh, similar names are not accepted. <laughs> okay, so in essence, like when I'll be writing that uh, domain model in text, or just thinking about it, or just communicating about it, like explaining this uh, to other guys, I would say, okay, so uh, you know, we have this factory, and you can assign new employees to the factory, and when you do that, well, you can assign an employee to a factory uh, only if he his name has not been recorded already at the factory, and if, say, his name is not Bender, because we'll all know that guys with the name Bender, they are trouble. <laughs> and when employee is assigned to the factory, like, he can do work for that. Uh, for example, we have, uh, like, at this factory, we have Cargo Bay. And uh, each morning or, like, whatever uh, time is convenient, uh, car parts arrive at this, are transferred to this cargo bay from my, some supplier. Uh, however, like these car parts can be transferred to the cargo bay uh, only if there are two or more workers at the factory, or maybe if there is one or more worker at the factory, because there has to be somebody who can open the cargo bay doors. Uh, and when this uh, cargo bay doors, uh, uh, when this stuff is transferred to the cargo bay, if it happens that if there are too many car parts, then the workers will start cursing. That's okay, and in our factory, uh, since management is really interested in expanding their vocabulary, they happen to record this stuff as well, just for a future reference. I see. Uh, and so, this is the quick story, like beginning of the story of the factory. However, like while I was telling it, I was actually using names of the commands and names of the events, like uh, transfer car parts to the cargo bay, mm -hmm. or uh, like assign employee to the factory, and then the event that employee was assigned. More than that, I was also mentioning uh, uh, behaviors like, and conditions that should be fulfilled. Like, for example, I mentioned the condition that uh, car parts can be transferred to the cargo bay only if there is one or more uh, worker available at the factory. Or uh, there was another business condition that if uh, we're trying to assign worker with the name Bender to the factory, then uh, it will actually fail because uh, names guys with the name Bender are not allowed at the facilities. Right. Okay. So uh, back to your question. When I'm uh, actually creating a domain model, so I'm doing two things in parallel. First, I'm writing a story. And while writing a story, uh, or well, just thinking about the story, I'm trying to think about it as a text with a highlighted in bold commands and events. However, it practically, like they're just highlighted for me, but whomever else reads this story, whomever else reads this uh, text, uh, they actually, uh, I don't highlight this for them. They just uh, see a plain text. And if this plain text makes sense to them, then, uh, okay, we have some uh, working domain model. Uh, if they start correcting uh, some sentences, if they start correcting some words, then they're actually correcting uh, names of the commands and events, or maybe they're correcting some business behaviors, which are hidden inside this text. Mm -hmm. In essence, although they're not developers, maybe they're just plain business people, but they're helping to uh, shape the domain model. And since uh, in my own vision, I have this like behaviors attached to this sentence, and since I have name of the command and event attached uh, to this part and to this part, so in essence, as we shape the text, I see that actually how the code is shaped. So second part of the modeling exercise uh, is actually uh, writing a code that expresses the same things that the written text uh, and also keep this code updated as the text, as the understanding changes. Uh, and obviously, uh, so this text that we write to express our domain model and uh, make it understandable by other guys who are not familiar with the development, uh, it doesn't always need to be a plain text. Sometimes you can add, for example, a short uh, hand-drawn hand diagram using Balsamic or uh, Visio or whatever else. Uh, sometimes you can... Uh, write a use case, you can mention, okay, this when this happens, this can happen. Or sometimes you can write specifications which explain uh, the specific use case. 
Uh, in essence, what I'm trying to say is that you're not limited only to the text when you're explaining the model. Uh, it can be anything as long as the model is uh, understood by other folks. Uh, as in your own mind, you can make the connection between this uh, actual written text domain model and the code that you are going to write. And as we will go through the process uh, of both creating a textual domain model and also uh, creating a domain model implemented in the code and maintaining the links between them, uh, you'll get used to the process like of thinking of these two as parallel representations of the same thing and how to keep them uh, in sync. Right. So, so, so all of these, all of this is just really the the foundation of learning how to communicate through text, diagrams, specifications, whatever tools you want to use to begin facilitating that two way conversation between the people writing the code and the domain experts that understand what it needs to do. Yes, and it's just a part of the process of uh, finding core business concepts and capturing them first in the text, uh, and for that text. Uh, since text is a, present, a representation of the domain model in our heads, and this representation can be extended to the code. And code is actually the thing that runs. And essentially, if you master that process, uh, you would be able to like f look at maybe any complex uh, market problem or go to the complex department with, I don't know, extremely involved and intricate uh, paper workflows, and you'll be able first write them down on a sheet of paper, and then implement them in a code in a rather straightforward way. Cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, I probably kept that going longer than you wanted me to, but uh, I really thought it was important, and I wanted to make sure I was heading in the right direction there, so I appreciate it. And um, I think it's time for us to get into the topic of today's episode, which is event sourcing basics. So uh, before we get into the explanation of that, I'll just point the listeners to, the again, the GitHub code sample. We're going to be looking at the, the folder, the project name, E004 event sourcing basics. So if you want to uh, follow along looking at the code later uh, when you're back at your machine listening to this, that is what we are referring to today. So Renat, take it away. Okay, so uh, I actually already started uh, explaining this uh, basics of event sourcing and this sample while I was explaining the story of the factory. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, when I was talking about the text, like uh, when I was telling the stuff that can happen on the factory, I was actually having uh, a code model already in mind, and I was actually explaining you the code model. So uh, event sourcing, it's uh, just an intricate way, uh, maybe complex sounding way uh, of saying this uh, simple thing. We're using the code to capture uh, behaviors, uh, and when these behaviors are executed, like when something happens in our domain model, we create events that say that something happened. And we persist these events uh, as a history, as a, in a journal, to say that this happened to the model, this stuff has happened to the model, this happened to the model. And these, we use these events. Uh, we learned how to persist messages in previous episodes, and we'll get back to that later, uh, as a way to persist our histories, and in essence, as a way to persist our model. Uh, so in this sample, we'll try to implement factory. Uh, we will not focus uh, right now at individual workers. We will not go into the details of uh, single uh, car production. Uh, we're just focusing in factory. Uh, and factory, in this case, it will be an object. Uh, this object, uh, sometimes I might refer to it as an entity, uh, but we'll get to the details semantics later. Uh, this factory implementation, uh, it will have multiple methods. Methods will read something like this. Assign employee to factory, transfer shipment to cargo bay, unload shipment from cargo bay, produce car. If you were listening before, uh, you heard me saying these exact words about uh, assigning employee to a factory, about transferring shipping to cargo bay, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to avoid confusion, uh, when we talk about methods, about command methods, which are an imperative, which say, do something, do something, do something, uh, in essence, these methods, they're exact almost exact equivalent of command message. It's just command message expressed in different way in code. 
and they are actually interchangeable and they are actually connectable. However, just uh, to make sure that you get used to the interchangeability of method call and uh, a message, in this implementation, we'll uh, implement commands as methods. Okay, so in literally in the event sourcing basics example, when I'm looking at this class factory implementation one, those methods that you defined in there that you just described, those in this example, those will represent our commands, and there are no command messages elsewhere in the sample. No, there aren't. Okay, got it. However, for example, if you look at first method, you can already see uh, how it can be translated into a command. So uh, if we have method assign employee to a factory mm-hmm. with one parameter employee name. It's actually equivalent to command message named assign employee to factory with one field called employee name. Yep. Uh, a same, uh, same way transfer shipment to cargo bay method call with two parameters. It's equal to command message, uh, which has two fields as well. Yeah, that makes uh, th- those those line up pretty well for me anyway. When I when I see those, I would just by the naming alone, I immediately saw the command messages in my head, you know. Uh, they are both named the same way, imperative. Yes. So in essence, uh, like right now, we're, we'll be running our factory model uh, locally in the code. However, if we were to take this, our implementation, and host in real-world production, so actually this sounds more scary than it is, uh, and be able to communicate with that server remotely, then we'll just send a method uh, command messages, uh, assign employee to a factory, transfer shipment to Cargo Bay, and this server, upon, uh, upon accepting these command messages, it will just wire via application service infrastructure this method calls, and it will pass fields into the parameters and invoke this, and it will invoke this method calls. Yep. So, but once again, method call that sounds like a command is equivalent to a command. Got it. Okay, so uh, let's dive now into inside the implementation of a single method call. Uh, this method call, it's in essence a behavior. Uh, a behavior can consist of following elements. First, uh, like when we are assigning employee to a factory, we can do some checks. We might need some. Uh, we might need to do some checks. Uh, in our story before, as if you recall, we had check that if employee with the same name is already assigned to the factory, we can't do anything, we will fail. Or another check is if uh, the name of employee to be assigned is Bender, then we will also fail. Uh, failure, uh, it is usually expressed as a, an exception being thrown. Uh, in our case, we will just print something to console, although these are equivalent. Uh, then, so one first element is check. Uh, second element is uh, optional, another optional element is some work. So uh, in essence, if we're commanding our factory, first uh, step will be to check if the worker can be assigned to the factory. Uh, second step will be actually paperwork, like uh, ra- creating a new card, filling in this uh, card with worker information, uh, writing, uh, printing out security pass for the worker, and actually letting uh, the worker enter the factory. In this case, we're just pretending and we're just letting the current thread sleep for one second to make it feel as if our computer was doing some real work for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last step is to actually record that this happened to a factory. Uh, and we record that by creating an event that describes uh, the essential part of what happened and writing it to a journal. Okay? okay. So in essence, uh, inside our method that captures behavior, assign employee to a factory, we'll have three elements. First, check if employee can be assigned to a factory, uh, then do some paperwork, and then uh, actually record that employee was assigned to a factory. Yeah, and that's that's in the factory implementation, implementation two you're referring to, where you have the check if employee can be assigned to factory. That's That check is the first, that's literally the, the domain business rules being implemented inside that method. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and in essence, we can uh, take almost any uh, method on a factory implementation and uh, describe it this way. Uh, Okay, so now that we have the idea that behavior, that a method, uh, when it's being executed, is essentially a sequence of steps, and these steps are check, some uh, essentially checks, guards, 
uh, then some uh, heavyweight logic, maybe some uh, business decisions. And the last step is actual rec record of the stuff that happened. Now, uh, let's dive actually deeper into the code, and that will be a factory implementation tree. Okay. So, in essence, in this code, uh, that's uh, equivalent to factory implementation too, but we just go slightly deeper. Uh, so, we start by uh, looking inside uh, the assigned employee to a factory method. So, first, just as a highlight just to make it the stuff more visible to the console we actually print uh, the command that we're actually executing so in our case we're just print okay hey we're assigning employee uh, we're trying to assign employee with this name to a factory uh, then we proceed with our check uh, what first check is uh, if our list of employee names contains uh, this new name of the employee uh, then we will fail and actually, if you look at the code, I just read the variables and uh, I actually read what happens. I actually read the code. And although this might sound, what's the word, as excessive, but that uh, is extremely important. Our code should read like a text, should read like a, like a text. Because our code represents something that can be, uh, exist in the real world and that can be expressed as a text. So there should be always connections. The, uh, if you have some words in your domain model, if you have some words in your ubiquitous language, then try to use them in your code as much as possible. Uh, yes, I understand that this can make your variable names or, or parameter names or method names look longer. But since uh, storage is dead cheap these days, uh, we don't really care. Right, and I think there's a, I mean, in the example of factory implementation three, that's, I think you're striking a good balance. It's not too long, but it's extremely descriptive. It reads literally like a sentence. I mean, it says, if our list of employee names dot contains employee name, then, I mean, my mom can understand that. Mm -hmm. So That's the idea. And in essence, by uh, writing, what's the word? Uh, writing the code in such a descriptive way, uh, you're also bringing additional value to that code. You're ensuring that the code will be easier to maintain in the long term. That you can hire a new developer or a new junior developer and you can bring in him in to write additional tests or maybe to write in some additional modifi modifications. In essence, maintainable code costs a lot more than hacky code that is hard to maintain. As I say, there is like some code is write only. You'll write it once and then you can never understand it. <laughs> uh, Obviously, write-only code that is, uh, can be understood only by elite hackers, it can look complicated, but it doesn't cost much. Uh, really large enterprise companies or maybe small startups that have to save resources, they care about the code that is both writable and readable and maintainable. That's actually, is such code, as I say, is worth its value in gold. Okay, so uh, in our implementation of uh, method assign, assign employee to a factory, uh, we go through all three steps. Uh, first, we do the check by uh, checking the variable of our list of employee names for existence of employee name. We'll uh, get back to that variable a little bit later. Then in our check, if uh, our employee name is Bender, then once again, we fail and we return. As in essence, this first method fail that prints something to the console and then return that exits out of this method immediately, essentially breaks, breaks the execution, uh, is equivalent to throwing an exception, mm -hmm. which so, uh, contain, carries out uh, some, what's the word, some information and also breaks the execution. But since I didn't want to pollute this uh, sample with try-catch statements, I just uh, skipped it. Yeah, and, and just to say that again, the when you look at the sample code, this thing that says fail with some text on it that just goes out to the console, in the real world, that's where you would implement your exceptions on, you know, something went wrong. You wouldn't just write it to the console typically. Okay, and then after we've done some checks, we pretend that we're doing some uh, paperwork to factory. Uh, in the real world implementation, these can be calls, for example, uh, to domain services, uh, that integrate with third-party systems like uh, worker uh, management system or uh, employee, I don't know, recording system or uh, automation that opens factory doors. 
Uh, and then we actually record that uh, into a journal, uh, the fact that new employee was assigned to a factory. And the thing that we record is our event. As we talked earlier, events, they are spoken in a past tense and they uh, explain something that happened in the past. So here's what we do. Uh, okay, and if we go into the contents of the record that method, uh, it actually uh, contains three uh, code statements. Code statement is actually uh, add this event to a journal of factory events. So as we were saying earlier, event sourcing is a way of persisting something as a sequence of events. Within this episode and within this code sample, we focus uh, only on one day on a factory. So uh, we don't care uh, too much about the persistence, but still it is there and it will be used at the end of the sample. Second statement is a dynamic redirect call, uh, which says announce inside a factory. So obviously in order to do stuff inside the factory, you need to have some uh, lists or reports or uh, something inside the factory. Workers have to know what's actually happening around them. They have to understand, they have to keep track of uh, what's, what the heck is going on. And so uh, this announce inside the factory, it's actually wires, passes the event to any specific method call that is interested in this event inside the factory and updates some variables. Uh, event sourcing magic kicks in. Well, so in that record that I see that it's, you know you're passing in an I event of E, and the first line is journal of factory events dot add, and then that event E. So I'm assuming, and I actually never connected these two for whatever reason. But in event sourcing, the event store it it only stores events; it never stores the commands. Well, you uh, in essence, event store. Uh, just to be exactly precise, is something that can store objects. So you can store uh, commands and events. Oh. Although commands are irrelevant for uh, our uh, persistence, but they're good for audit logs. Technically, event store can store commands as well. Uh, however, like uh, from the domain modeling perspective, we don't care about the commands. We uh, don't store them. I see. In this, so in this sample, we are in fact only storing the events in the event store because that's going to that's going to keep track of the state of our model. And you would you would optionally um, persist your commands for the audit purposes of what's what happened, what what caused these events. Uh, however, like in this sample, uh, we don't even uh, actually have uh, event store yet. So this journal of factory events is just uh, in memory list of stuff that happened today. Okay. Uh, when the day ends and we want to save everything that happened in the factory during the day, we'll take this journal of factory events and we'll persist it to some uh, harder media. I see. But so far, we're seeing that something that happens within a day is something that we can keep fresh in our memory, and it just happens like this. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, immediately and absolutely in, a, in an absolutely consistent way. So uh, record that method. Like The first two statements are important. First statement, it records an uh, event that happened in this factory within this day, in, like in, in short uh, journal. And second, uh, it passes this event to method that will be, will be used to update the state of the factory, some uh, additional variables inside the factory. This is really in the implementation details, but I've seen you use this approach a couple of times, and it looks like magic to me. Um, can you explain a little bit about right under that entry of journal of factory events dot add, there's the, this call to announce this event as happening to the factory and you're using dynamic and this and some t syntax I'm not that familiar with. Can you explain in English what, what's going on there? Okay. Uh, so uh, first from the factory perspective. So uh, in essence, what we're doing here, it's uh, like uh, there is a guy that records uh, something in the journal, that was journal of factory events, and he also shouts to everybody in the factory, hey guys, that's what happened. Uh, and this shouting part, it's, uh, this is, it is this dynamic sentence. In essence, it's just a shortcut that tells the compiler uh, and the execution runtime to take this event and pass it to any method inside this uh, factory class that has the name announce inside factory mm. and as a parameter that matches to the type of event. 
Oh, that's cool. So that that line using that trick is 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 how that method below this one um, gets this event. Yes. So in essence, this is a replacement of a large if then statement. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, if I were to write if the event uh, is employee assigned to a factory, then call the method it's announced inside the factory with this event. Or if the event is shipment transferred to a cargo bay, then uh, call another ma- method. I see. Uh, so in essence, uh, this is just a shortcut. Right. But magically pass the specific event to the directly to the method that can handle it. And because and because of that shortcut, if as you add more things that care about this specific event, you know, you've got today in this sample, you've got an announce inside factory. But if there was 20 other methods that cared about this event, you could use that shortcut just right below, you know, and anything named this, you you can send it to that. Anything named this, send it to that, basically. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, so in essence, uh, once again, our record that method, it does two things. First, we write something down to the journal of the factory, and then we shout it to every, uh, immediately shout as we write that, uh, shout that to everybody inside the factory, hey, that's what this happened. And uh, like there are people, they say, oh, okay, so there was this new guy coming to the factory, so our list of employee names now contains this name. And then the guy who is actually uh, responsible for accepting new employees, he will remember that, and he'll be able to check Hey, you are uh, like this guy was already on our factory. You no, you can't come in. Oh, so yeah, I, I actually didn't connect that. Like, I, I thought you needed distinct methods for multiple things to happen to that event, but no, you actually are using this one single event that happened, and even inside, right below it, announcements inside the factory, you're able to do, you know, you update the list, you update the shipping, the shipments, and all this stuff, all based on one event happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Okay. Well, uh, so in essence, uh, like the variables, our list of employee names and variable shipment waiting to be unloaded, uh, it's how workers inside the factory perceive their current state. It's a representation of the current state. It's their, uh, it's their understanding. So uh, obviously, like the operation is carried by one worker inside the factory, uh, but since we consider this factory to be one and then who? Uh, so uh, when something happens with one worker, every, uh, it clicks immediately in the minds of other workers, and they update their in-memory picture. So these variables, our list of employee names and shipment waiting, uh, shipments waiting to be unloaded, it's our uh, in-memory representation of factory state. It's our current memory representation of factory state, and it's updated immediately as something happens to the factory. Got it. I understand that my explanation of this part uh, can um, be quite confusing and not clear, and this is just an indication that uh, I myself don't fully understand like how to uh, explain this, this in simple words, which means that I don't really understand it, uh, the event sourcing myself. <laughs> no, I, I mean, well... I mean, I understand what the sample is doing now. I just that that dynamic stuff and this dot the syntax just confused me a little bit. But now that I look right below it in the sample and see see the benefits of that, the you know you're allowed you're you're able to use one method signature of announce inside factory that takes some kind of uh, strongly typed object of an event and let the compiler deal with all those strongly typed event types um, in in one simple way. So mm-hmm. so that's cool. Yes, and so in essence, our factory as an object, uh, uh, it has methods. This, uh, once again, these methods can uh, contain complex behaviors. Uh, while uh, invoking and doing something with these complex behaviors, first we have to make these decisions. And we make decisions uh, based on our uh, understanding of what's, uh, what is current factory state. Uh, and uh, we don't change this current factory state. We just uh, see it and we make the decisions. And we express the decisions that they were made by recording them into our journal. The decision is considered to be made only after we recorded that. And our code is implemented in such a way that immediately when we record that event into this journal, uh, not only the journal, uh, the event is added to the list, but it also is announced all across the factory. 
And since our, we have this uh, smart and crazy dynamic code, this announcement means that everybody who is interested in that uh, event will immediately update the state variables. Yep. Uh, which means that, for example, inside the assign employee to a factory, uh, at the point when uh, we like when we're trying to assign our first employee, for example, and when there are no employees, so our list of employee names will be empty. Uh, however, as soon as method call record that new employee assigned to factory with employee name, let's say Bender, or I mean Luke, uh, as soon as this method is executed, then at the end of the execution of this method, our list of employee names will contain Luke. This is because the event first was recorded to the log and then it was shouted out to the factory. And as part of the factory announcement, uh, one of the effects was that our list of employee names was updated. This is extremely powerful aspect of event sourcing, uh, which we'll exploit heavily later uh, when we'll be uh, evolving our models to uh, get more complex and intricate behaviors. Uh, one rule and one uh, takeaway right now is that we might have some state variables inside our uh, aggregate, inside our factory object. However, we don't change them. For instance, we could have added our employee name directly to our list of employee names. However, this is prohibited. You, you just can't do that. Yes, oh, of course, you can do that in the code, but uh, you shouldn't do that. Uh, we change these variables uh, via a long way. We uh, publish an event that uh, says that something happened. And as a side effect of that event being published, the list will be updated. That makes sense. Yes, yeah, so the state the state of all these things, in this case, our list of employee names, we didn't call that list directly and say, you know, put the word Bender and Luke in there. We let the side effect of publishing the event and those things that care about the event take care of that. Yes, uh, and uh, we will make this concept uh, more explicit in the next episode. Uh, but for now, the important aspect uh, of this decision that will change our state variables only via the events, uh, in essence, it guarantees that all important changes are persisted uh, in the events, because otherwise we will not be able to make uh, further decisions on, uh, based on the information that they contain. Uh, in essence, did ensures us, first, that our uh, all our changes are used in the event and they can be used, for example, uh, in the reports downstream. And second, it ensures that we have perfect audit log uh, that of what happened in the system. Uh, if you were dealing with so-called enterprise systems, uh, one of the really complicated and rather frequently used requirements is that some systems require for compliance to have full audit log of everything that happened. And in a classical approach, you will have some code that, for example, change, changes something in the database, and that then prints something to the additional audit log table. However, with this approach, one of the common problems is that, okay, somebody refactored this uh, database changing call, and they save additional information, but they forgot to update this auditing method. Mm -hmm. And so it's not complete. Here, since we are persisting our changes via the events, and we know for sure that everything is uh, persisted in that event, because if it is not persisted, then we, can use, we can't uh, use that information in subsequent method calls. This guarantees us that the information in the event stream is perfect audit log. Right, because nowhere in our system is state allowed to change without an event being written to the journal or the event stream first. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. The only way to change state of an aggregate, the state of the factory, is by publishing an event. And a side effect of recording, publishing or recording that event is that the state will change. Got it. Okay. And so in this sample, uh, there are additional implementation of assign employee to a factory, uh, transfer shipment to Cargo Bay, and I'll finish unload shipment from Cargo Bay and produce car. Uh, in essence, the idea is that these things should be read as a sentence. Uh, not as a sentence, as a text. Uh, actually, uh, even better. Uh, I will keep uh, in the final sample that will be published uh, in, within this episode. Uh, there will be only two methods implemented. 
and for uh, two additional methods produce car and unload shipment from cargo bay uh, it will be for the homework okay okay and uh, for the record for example uh, the homework it will be to implement the story like this uh, we can un unload uh, shipment from the cargo bay uh, only if uh, the employee hasn't been doing any unloading today uh, and if there are actually any shipments at this cargo bay and when we unload shipments from cargo bay actually all shipments that are already stored in the cargo bay uh, they are unloaded and this means that they are available on the factory for further production uh, and then we can have somebody uh, produce cars uh, and we know that car Model T, if you want to produce it, uh, it requires six wheels, one engine, and two sets of bits and pieces. And that's the only car that we can produce. Uh, and if we have enough spare parts uh, in our, inside our factory, and if we have employee that has, uh, like if our employee that we're asking has been doing any car production uh, within a day, then we'll be able to, to produce that car successfully. Otherwise, we get, uh, like, we'll fail. Okay, so uh, that will be the part of the future homework. Uh, back to our sample. Uh, so uh, later in that sample, I uh, wrote actually code that takes, uh, that creates uh, an instance of factory implementation, and that actually tries to execute some behaviors. And where, where's that? Where are you looking at right now, Rina? Scroll down to uh, there, like after the third implementation, mm -hmm. uh, there are steps, and then there is a method run factor implementation three, which uh, I'll probably merge into the main. Oh, I see. Main. Okay, got it. Run factor implementation three. Got it. Okay, uh, so in essence, uh, here we're writing our commands expressed as methods in this case. So we're telling the factory, we're uh, telling the factory, please transfer shipment to cargo bay. And this shipment is named chassis, and it contains four chassis. And based on the discussion before, we know that if we have a fresh factory and there are no workers in it, that method should fail. And uh, if you launch the uh, console, it will actually say that. So in essence, uh, we have our ex uh, model first expressed in the text. Then we have the same model expressed in the code. And then when we're running this model in a console, it will tell exactly the same story in different words. So uh, if you uh, pick, set this project in Visual Studio as startup and hit Control F5, you should read the story. Yep, and I see that in the, in the console outputting the story. Yes. So for example, first two lines say, oh, we have a command, uh, colored blue, uh, transfer shipment to cargo bay. And then there is a failure according to our script, according to our plan, that there has to be somebody at factory in order to accept shipment. Uh, and just for the reference, I like the code color that I'm using both in my blog uh, and in diagrams and uh, in different tools that aid development is that commands are blue. Uh, they're blue because they're unsure, because they, you're never sure if it will be executed as expected. Events are green. Uh, there's something that has happened, it is okay, and something that has happened, it can be can never be changed. Well, obviously failures are colored red, and some uh, actual work or state persistence, it's usually colored yellow. I see. Okay, and so in our code, we try, uh, we play with the factory. It's in essence like we're, as if we were telling our granny that was telling our story, uh, and we try to ask stupid questions like, what would happen if uh, Red Hood didn't go into the forest? Or what would happen if Red Hood, instead of the, what's the word, pies, took a shotgun and a set of grenades? <laughs> and uh, since we have the story expressed already, so uh, the factory implementation class should answer, uh, should provide coherent accents, should provide coherent reactions and answers to the command that we're trying to throw at this factory. So, for example, if we have, uh, if we assign Yoda to a factory, then second attempt uh, to assign Yoda to a factory uh, fails shoot because only one Yoda can there be. <laughs> okay, and uh, just to demonstrate one of the side effects of the event sourcing, uh, 
as applied to this really simple sample uh, is that after running this, uh, after trying to run second, certain commands with the factory, which are transfer shipments and assign employees, and seeing what happens as a side effect to that, we also ask our factory to print what happened today. And that's at the end of this uh, method, large method call, we're just enumerate through the journal of factory events uh, and print these events to the factory. And once again, it will print the same events that happened. So in essence, we're here we're printing our audit log. And it's also the same set of events that later on will be persisting to our event store. Right, and at the bottom where you're printing out those events, I see they're all green because anything that wasn't green didn't happen, basically. Yes, yes, yes. Got it. Well, would we persist those failures or would we want to know about, you know, the site? So, you know, in this example, you have you assign Yoda to the factory and then you try to assign another Yoda to the factory. And I see in the console in red, you know, the name of Yoda already exists. Basically, it's an error. That's where an exception would happen. And the events, the state doesn't care about that. The The audit log may care about it and the, the exception handling may care about it. But our event, the place we store our truth, the state doesn't care. Uh, yes, in this case, we don't care uh, because in this universe, we technically don't even think that they can be uh, two Yodas. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So, well, there, well, everybody knows or not, there can never be two two Yodas. But, but um, yes, I understand that we, for the sake of simplicity, you know, we in another implementation we may actually care about that, but in this example, we don't. We throw it away. We throw we throw an error. We print it red and. And at the end, when you're printing out the events that we care about, those things aren't in there. Yes. Well, actually, the universe in which Toyota's might exist is uh, when we bring Avengers and Star Wars in the, into the same universe. And <laughs> they have already suspected, uh, like when Yoda was young, he was much bigger and bumpier and without hair, and he was called Hulk. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm smelling way too geeky here. We're, how many, I wonder how many listeners we just lost. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they're adding. Maybe we're adding listeners. We're going to get a bunch of uh, Comic Con fans or something listening on. So, anyway, <laughs> since uh, back to the topic of failures. So uh, the failures, uh, in essence, we're handling it uh, is based on case by case basis. Uh, some failures, uh, we're just having sanity checks because something is not allowed to happen, and normally it, isn't, it does not happen. Uh, for example, that manager always knows that there can be no second uh, Yoda or second employee with the same name is sent to the factory, and if the like, command comes in, it's because of some typo or, or uh, new manager was assigned who doesn't know what the heck is going on, so we just throw an exception and somebody at the maintenance will handle this exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it may, uh, our system might be configured in such a way that when actually uh, our factory throws an exception, it's a bit, it, it will be intercepted at a higher level uh, and it will be packed it into a, maybe some side event that will also be persisted into the event store. But only even in the case if this is relevant to us. Okay. So uh, there are multiple ways of handling this. Or... Uh, one more way is that we might be actually willing to have our factory uh, ins- not inside something that listen- picks up the commands from the queue, but inside a remote procedure callable interface. And in this case, when we're uh, calling a remote factory and asking it to assign an employee to a factory, if this method calls fails, then we'll, uh, as a response, we'll get an exception. So uh, multiple scenarios are possible. Uh, how would you deal with failures? Uh, their implementation, their handling depends on case-by-case basis. Uh, personally, in production, when I'm uh, working on a domain model, uh, if I know that something normally should never happen unless if I get something or something changes in an expected way, so I uh, code in these assumptions as throw exception. And in the infrastructure is... Uh, structured in such a way that if an exception is thrown, then it will be recorded along with the command message that caused it. And then uh, we'll probably discuss it later when we get to the look at security infrastructure. 
So uh, this information is uh, persisted on a disk, and it is also mailed to our customer support. Uh, customer support and system support are usually that just uh, me. And when I get this failure, I can always reproduce it locally. That's one of the positive side effects. Uh, because I know the time of the day, exact time at which this failure happened, I will also persist like uh, which version of the factory we were using. Uh, I can actually load this factory locally from the production event store. Uh, and by replaying the events inside the factory, I will be able to reproduce the exact state of the factory at the moment when this exception occurred. Then I can uh, fire that instance like in a local unit test. Uh, I can pass in the command because it's also being persisted. And I will have uh, in my debugger the exact state of the factory at the moment of exception. I'll be able to investigate what was the problem. I will be able to fix the error. Uh, however, there is even more fun in that. Uh, after the code is fixed, we can push it into the production, take our command message that was failed and that uh, was recorded, and send it to the factory once again. And this time, this command will pass. And, the, and, and that, that's an example kind of where you're striking the balance between, I don't necessarily, these should be anomalies and I don't care about it, so I can throw an exception, but I have a convenient way to package those exceptions so I can at least evaluate it after the fact and decide if I care about it now or, don't, or just fix the problem and move on. Yes. So in essence, uh, by saying that we'll handle these exceptions later when they happen, or we'll handle these exceptions later if they happen, we'll just save us uh, some work. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we still don't discard any information that will prevent us from handling this exception later. Because we're using event sourcing and because we'll be able to get factory back to the exact state when this exception happened. And actually, like uh, just a story from Locat, uh, we're working with some relatively slow processes. And like as you probably know, big data number crunching uh, can take hours to compute. Mm-hmm. So if we have some long-running process and there, there is a command that comes in, and for example, uh, this command points to customer data that contains some uh, failing symbols, like some illegal input. Uh, maybe it contains some uh, ASCII control cars, which we normally can't process, and our Excel generation fails. However, since I can reproduce that information, uh, I can always debug this, I can find the problem, and maybe I can just add a quick fix that will correct customer's data and will be able to produce a report, even though normally we would never be able to handle this. And after the deploying a fix, I can resend the command and have a customer's uh, business process going on to a successful finish. Repeating multiple times, and in essence, we're able to fix issues in our models even before like, they were actually noticed. Not uh, maybe fixing issues or maybe proactively adding features, uh, maybe adding some uh, helpful information, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's allowing you to take those exceptions and, and the the data that goes along with those to to potentially fix problems before the customers even realize there was one. Yes. Uh, and it also has one more important side effect, uh, is that by allowing, by delaying decisions, you're actually bringing a lot of value. Because by delaying decisions that may be not important, instead you can focus on something that is extremely more important right now. And this uh, speeds up the process of delivery of core value to the market, of uh, core value to the software. This actually allows you to actually start making money instead of uh, wasting time on uh, handling this exception, handling this exception, handling this exception. Mm -hmm. Of course, having that said, uh, it's really important to balance out the exceptions that are uh, important, that are very valuable, that are risky enough, and the exceptions that don't really matter. And if they happen, we don't care that much or we can fix it easier. Makes sense. Okay. And these are additional like production level uh, benefits that you can gain from using event sourcing and secure as best implementations. Cool. I uh, 
I want to get in there and mess with that sample and work on the homework because I think it's going to solidify my brain even more after I start messing around with it. And I was about to just switch over to Trello because I'm not actually sure what the next episode is about. Do you happen to know what are we talking about next time? <laughs> Today we'll go deeper into the event sourcing. Okay. All right. So probably we'll take and discuss one additional side effect of event sourcing. Uh, it's testing the event sourcing. Uh, test uh, and actually express your code in a text by one uh, one additional way uh, while while testing it and printing human readable specifications that can be passed uh, down to the quality assurance and that will explain exactly what code says. Cool, and I and I think that you know. So we're not 100% sure exactly what we're going to be talking about, but that means write in your comments and go to the Trello board and give us feedback because you could influence the next episode a little bit. So. Uh, back to the uh, actual feedback loop. So in essence, if you have uh, folks, if you have any questions, if uh, some of the, uh, my explanations were not just confusing but outstandingly confusing, once again, don't hesitate to add uh, comments, and then Carrie will voice them in the next episode. Sounds good. And uh, I think that'll do it for this one. We ran pretty long on this one. So I, I think mental note to me is if I can get Renat to record in the evenings, the episodes might run longer. That may be good or bad. I don't know if uh, if uh, I, I know I enjoyed it. So hopefully uh, this extended episode will be good for you guys, too. But uh, until then, we're at beingtheworst.com. We're on Twitter at, at beingtheworst. And on GitHub, beingtheworst is our username. Check out the source code. Give us the feedback. Uh, we're getting more and more feedback. I uh, really appreciate it, so keep it coming. And uh, Renat, do you have anything else? Yeah, sure. Next time we'll try to time box back to the 20, 25 minutes. Oh, wow. He's already trying to get out of it. I'm, I was already pushing for more. It's just I'm just like a customer. You know, you give them an inch, they want to take a mile. You know, a time box of 20 and 30 minutes. I'm like, all right, our episodes. Here we go. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll fight offline on that one, and uh, we'll see you guys next time on the uh, Being the Worst podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.